Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. In the hybrid workplace, where some people are working from the office and others remotely, it can be challenging to communicate in a way that fosters engagement. However, there are many new strategies and tools that can help you with this. My guests in this episode have been helping people communicate more effectively in the workplace for over 40 years. Combining their research and industry expertise, they help create engagement and turn conflicts into productive conversations. Dr. Susan Glazer and Dr. Peter Glazer are the founders of Glazer and Associates, Inc., providing essential interpersonal communication and leadership development consulting services to organizations. They earned their doctorates in communication from Pennsylvania State University, and their Breakthrough Communication series has won the Gold Award for Best Hybrid Learning of 2022 from the International E-Learning Association. As married business partners and co-presenters for 40 years, Susan and Peter have published over 40 research articles and three books, including the internationally acclaimed book titled Be Quiet, Be Heard, The Paradox of Persuasion. Their research on transforming organizational culture has received the International Association of Business Communication Research Foundation Award for bridging communication theory and practice. Feature stories have been written about them in Psychology Today, Success Magazine, The Washington Post, and many more. They have served as members of the University of Oregon's faculty, as well as consulting globally with leaders in business and government. Thank you very much, Susan and Peter, for joining me on the podcast. Oh, glad to be here, Kinga. We always love our conversations with you. I really enjoy our conversations and hearing about the work that you do in in training people around the world and how to communicate well. It's such an important skill. And especially now, as we're going to talk about communicating and training in the digital space, that is very timely and important topic to discuss. I can't wait to hear about your insights. You have been working and helping people to communicate better in the workplace for over 40 years. And I absolutely love your story of how you work together, you're married, you've been partners in life and business for a long time. With the wealth of experience that you have, what do you think is the most common challenge that people face in communicating in the workplace? Uh, I will tell you the most common, Sue might have a different answer to this, but for me, it's that people avoid Mm -hmm. raising delicate issues. They avoid that direct, what they fear will be a confrontation. Mm -hmm. And this is global, by Mm -hmm. the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've worked in many countries. In our country, the United States is considered the most direct country. But even in our country, people are very indirect. And rather than having a conversation about what what we're concerned about, we're much more, with the person involved, we're much more likely to talk to someone else who we know will be a welcoming listener. Mm. And so that the person who we have the real issue with may never even hear what ails us. Yeah, I I would agree. And I would build on what Peter said um, by Mm. adding that... 
it's not that people just keep it bottled up, although that sometimes happens too. And so people are and then feeling- they explode. Oh yeah. So it's <laughs> somewhere between stress and anxiety and rage and confrontation. I think more commonly, people talk to, as Peter mentioned, a willing ear. Everybody kind of has a sounding board. But when you really look deeply into what a sounding board is, it's not typically someone who would offer you an alternative viewpoint. Sounding boards tend to be people who confirm our worst fears about things and allow us to believe that we are the people who've been wronged or victimized and that they care deeply about us. So that gives us a good feeling. I'd way rather talk to somebody who's going to say, oh, Susan, you are so right. You've had to put up with so much. It's really, really a pity. And, and so in organizations, what happens is here we're bonding with mm. or, or a person who is not directly involved in the issue, and it often taints their perceptions of the original person. And it's actually building, inadvertently, building walls between people in the organization, creating clicks, and things usually go downhill from there. And then the other thing that contributes to is this notion of lag time. How long does it take? from the time somebody identifies there's a problem till they speak it to someone who can fix the problem. And- Big problem with upstream feedback. Right. And, and so I would agree with Peter that this, and you could call it whatever you choose, indirect communication, um, an unwillingness or fear that is built on reality that if I share this, with someone in a leadership position, it could be a career limiting move. I could be in trouble. It might not be embraced. So there are all kinds of reasons why people don't communicate the problems as they see them. And that to us is what creates a very tough situation for organizations to adjust to the real problems that are within it. Mm. So people avoid conflict. And by avoiding conflict, there's misunderstanding. They build up walls. It's creating a, a bad work environment, a bad culture. And it's exacerbated in an online working environment and culture because you have even more walls to, to break down and less opportunity. So that's a really important, uh, important thing to address and something we'll talk a little bit more about. But before we jump into that, can you tell me a little bit more about the type of work that you do? How do you help people learn to be better communicators? Well, that's a deep question. Let's see, how do we help people to become better communicators? From the very beginning, our work together, we have always been interested in, and this is both in our research and our teaching, identifying what the micro- behaviors are that create communication mastery. We spend most of our time in the leadership space so that we are identifying those sort of micro tools that leaders need in order to master communication. Since our research and our teaching have always converged around that, it has identified our practice. We were reflecting very recently in, a, in an interview that how we got our start is related to these micro behaviors that are now part of our programming. And that is 
when we were graduate students, people say to us, wow, how could you live and work together for so long? And the main answer is it's been easy because we never knew any other way. We started teaching together within a week of being married and team teaching together at that same time. Part of the work we did was with clinically shy communicators. Our advisor and mentor at Penn State University, Dr. Gerald Phillips, was the first person in the world to really study reticence. We worked with him for our entire five or six years at Penn State on that. So when you're teaching clinically shy people. But by the way, by clinically shy, these are people not just who can make a public presentation, but in a small group or mm -hmm. even a one-to-one, they don't know how to initiate a conversation. Mm -hmm. Once they're in the conversation, they don't know how to keep it going. They don't know how to get out of the conversation. And so these are people who really struggle on every level uh, of uh, oral communication. And it really informed all of our work because in essence, we all have shy parts of who we are and it comes out with different people in different groups in different settings. And so you'll see as we keep talking, uh, each of our programs really takes into account opportunities for people who normally don't communicate at a high rate can get into the conversation. You'd hardly know it by the way we're talking now, but we're very, <laughs> we are very careful about that. Well, and also I think the fact that since we got started teaching shy communication apprehensive people, we from the very beginning began considering what are those true micro skills so for example, how do you ask a question to get someone else to speak? How do you listen to what that person says and then ask a follow-up question? So those kind of micro behaviors, and we can talk more because every one of our three courses is built on micro behaviors that we identify in the objectives and always survey when the course is over. So we have a rich history of surveying the behaviors that we have identified as core for that particular program. So you're really training people from a wide spectrum, those who are very, very shy, you're training leaders, so I imagine those who are completely on the opposite end of that spectrum, who are extremely extroverted. And the only thing I would add to that, Kinga, is that our, our practice right now is no longer focused on teaching um, shy people. It was so built around that, though, mm -hmm. from our graduate school days and our doctoral program, that it has influenced everything we do. Would you like a clean example of one for in our group? dynamics course that we call hardwiring hard teamwork. teamwork. Yes, that'd be great. So we teach our learners how to use what we call a PRESS model. PRESS stands for point, reason, example, summary. And they get 40, they only have, they have two minutes to prepare and 45 seconds to implement. And in 45 seconds, it has all the essential ingredients of a really persuasive message. And it so helps quiet people 
who sometimes don't have a, a, a good handle on how do I make input that, that really will connect with people? It really gives them a model for how to do that. And it's also extremely important for the extroverted people, what we call external processors, the ones who do most of the talking. And the reason it's so valuable to them is it gives them a model that keeps their comments brief and to the point. Because what happens to the external processors, they talk and talk and talk, people's eyes glaze over, they don't even pick up those cues, they just keep going on. Because they think out loud. Right. And when you think out loud, you're given way more words than anybody in that group wants to hear. So when we introduce the press system to organizations, yes, it helps the quiet people because now they can figure out the, um, oh, so this is how you make input. And it helps the more extroverted people because it helps them to get to the meat of what they want to say and do some of that external processing internally first. And is there maybe one takeaway? Of course, you spend a lot more time on, on teaching this skill, but is there one takeaway that someone can, can take from that press strategy? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's working its magic when an entire team buys into it because the meeting okay. almost overnight are different. Right. But in answer to your question. Clearer and shorter. Any individual can say right at this moment, gee, I have a meeting coming up tomorrow morning. I have something that I would like people to pay attention to. It's a belief I have, something I'm advocating. I'm going to try doing it with the point that I'd like to make is, here's the reason I believe that. Here's an example of what I mean. And in summary, that's why I'm convinced what we should do is X. Two quick points on that. The example is the soul of the press model. Example that shows us how your point lives and breathes in the real world. It's the one that connects with people most effectively. People often leave that out. They think they don't have time. It's the piece that's most powerful. The other thing I would say for the external processes of the world and for very quiet people, two minutes of silence before a discussion is critical. Two minutes of silence allows the uh, reticent people or, or the quieter people to get to the starting line at the same time. And it allows the more verbose people to collect their thoughts, put it into a, a, a PRES funnel so that they can again be more succinct. So to provide those two minutes of saying, okay, now everyone think for two minutes and that's when we're going to start our discussion. Exactly. exactly. And, and we say not just think, but take notes. Take notes. And when we ask them to take notes, it would be, what is your point? What's the reason you believe it? What's an example? And then summarize it and try to do it in 45 seconds. And those two minutes are so well spent. Great tip for people who are educators, people who are doing training in the workplace. There's yeah. always that one or two individuals in a, in a classroom, a training session that do all of the talking. And so having those two minutes of thinking, note-taking is, is a really, really great tip. Well, as yeah. long as we're doing tips on this, here's one other one for, for that arena. And that is how you pick up what people wanna say. So now the two minutes is over and everybody does some prep. So if you say, okay, share your thoughts. Normally it is still the external processors, the more extroverted people that go first and sometimes take up more and more time. 
-hmm. So one of the things we have become great advocates of is creating a queue of names. And it can be the way people are sitting around the table, or if it is a full out Zoom, it could be just some order that they appear on the screen. Or if it's a hybrid, some are on Zoom and some are in a face-to-face -face But they meeting. know where they are in the queue it's, when their name's coming. Exactly. It's a queue that you say at the beginning and everybody knows. And then when it comes to picking up items, you just stick with the queue. Mm -hmm. And if somebody says, I'm still taking it all in. I'm going to pass. They could take their turn around the next time it comes up in the queue. That also makes a huge difference. That's wonderful. That's really good. And we're actually going to talk about the fact that you're doing your training now online. You've been finding it to be an extremely successful in the strategies you're using online. But before we discuss that, I wanted to, to talk a little bit more about a very successful and award-winning training series that you have called Breakthrough Communications, which really consists of three different parts, breakthrough yes. conflict, hardwiring teamwork, persuasion, and influence. Let's discuss a little bit um, the skills that you teach people in this type of training. So let me start with an overview. Each of these courses really does fit on the kind of micro mm -hmm. behaviors we talked about. So Breakthrough Conflict, we subtitle a playbook for navigating challenging conversations. When we talk about conflict, one of the biggest misperceptions is that conflict is people yelling and shouting at each other. Well, sure, it is that. It's also way more subtle. It's anytime someone wants you to do something and you don't, or you want someone to do something and they don't. So this particular course, Breakthrough Conflict, is about introducing people to those micro skills that allow you to navigate through conflict with three outcome goals. This is the bar we hold for that course. Conflict should lead to three things. An important problem is solved, a key relationship is strengthened, and trust is deepened. And so some of the skill sets that we introduce are how to give and receive feedback, how to raise a delicate issue, how to respond to criticism in a way that rather than triggering becomes trust building. In short, how to create trust from conflict through micro skills. So, we gave you a couple of micro skills for the hardwiring teamwork a little earlier. Let us just share what one or two of these might be. In our raising issues segment, one of the micro skills that people might not be aware of or think about is to pinpoint the details because vague inflames, but specifics instruct. So for example, instead of saying to someone, you were rude and disrespectful at that meeting, to be able to say, when you said to me, why did you bring that up without announcing it first and getting it included on the agenda? I felt embarrassed. So to pinpoint a detail is a very big deal <clears throat> so in conflict. Another micro behavior that is very counterintuitive is a step in our model uh, where we talk about our contribution to the very issue that we're raising with the other person. I mean, literally saying to them, 
hey, listen, this one isn't all on you. I know I own part of the problem. And then we say what it is. By the way, before we put this step in our model, we interviewed thousands of people and realized no one person ever holds the issue. It's always joined by at least two people. And the search for the part you play, very informative, mm -hmm. but the communication of it is so disarming. It is very hard for someone to push back on someone who's owning their own accountability. And here's another micro example from that course. When we talk about how to respond to criticism and anger, one of the things we say is be curious, not furious. Now that's not a micro behavior, that's kind of a recommendation. So the micro behavior that lets that happen is if somebody attacks you, it is useful to say, wow, can you tell me more? I never realized that. And that is so counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but that's a micro behavior that allows people to develop curiosity rather than, I guess it's no word, curiosity when <laughs> they're in one of those difficult conversations. So those are a couple of micro behaviors in the Breakthrough Conflict Playbook for Challenging Conversations course. The second one, and this is one we talked about a little already when we talked about the press, is hardwiring teamwork. The subtitle of that is, a blueprint for building engaged, inclusive, productive teams. What I really love about this particular course is that it's so what people are saying we need more of and how do we do it in a hybrid world? And how do we even do it in a real world? And how is it possible to create actionable agreements from completely divergent points of view? How is it possible to dissolve silos and replace it with cross-organizational cooperation? How is it possible to balance input from quiet people and dominating people? So those are the sorts of things that we address in the hardwiring teamwork course. And those were the ones that we gave you micro behavior examples of earlier with the press and the two minutes of right. silence before that workplaces being hybrid or online, do you think that hardwiring teamwork is becoming more difficult? Like how, how do you think that has changed from what you've seen in your experience? I, mean, I think it's becoming way more difficult in a number of dimensions. One of them is that when you think about what, what does create teamwork that's missing in the hybrid world, it's bumping into people, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I remember in graduate school, one of the first research studies we ever read was about propinquity and attraction, meaning people who hang out together tend to like each other more. Now, of course, nothing is always true. It used to be the way, the way people got married. Mostly mm -hmm. they met at work or in college. Yes. Right. Oh, and the studies of this were everything from workplace to battleships. Mm -hmm. And so now when you think about that, when propinquity dissolves, what are the other options for creating that sort of teamwork, that relationship building? And that is the heavy lift right now that many organizations are facing. And even in a hybrid workplace, that's almost always defined by 
people aren't there necessarily on the same day, even if people are always there sometime. And so organizations need to work harder and more creatively to find ways to bring that back. Because the other issue is, it's hard for a team to be a fully productive team if they're not doing more than handling the daily transactions of life. Yes. A team only gets stuff checked off the to-do list. That is not a fully activated team. So to us, and this can be done in a hybrid world, how do you consistently be sure that the team is working on important, meaningful, creative questions central to that team's work? So what we do in our work to make this happen is we interview in advance and we find out what are the issues that are currently creating separation. What are the issues that people need to talk about because they're important enough, we can't agree to disagree because something needs to happen. And we discover what those issues are. And this is how we make online learning, by the way, uh, vital. And, and, and you know, you talk about team building. One of the ways you build a team is to focus on real issues that the current that the team is facing. Uh, and then we take them through our processes so that they come out with real solutions. And, and when you do that with a group of people, it's not status quo at the end. Uh, once you've really achieved some uh, hurdles uh, that have been holding you up, you feel closer with those people. Now, having said that, uh, we're, we're right now our practice is both online and in person. And you can't take away the power of being with a person, but we're, I, we feel like we're getting as close as you possibly can um, by the approach that we've developed for online learning. And that's a really great thing for trainers and for educators to take away is that you use examples that are very relevant to the people that you are training. Absolutely. And that's what you apply to your material. And in fact, I know that you do a very unique way of training because you are both also trained actors yes. and you actually act out the scenarios to make it very visible. But the examples you use are from the context of the individuals that you teach. That exactly right. So, exactly so that two right. things have to be happening every moment in our trainings. Number one, they have to be learning new skills that they can apply in a variety of contexts. And the other is that they are solving real problems immediate in their lives. Right. So those two things have to be going on at the same time. And, you know, being actors doesn't hurt because we find out their biggest problem of all, Susan takes one side of it, I take the other. We have a royal battle, uh, far worse than any of them have ever experienced. <laughs> but as we tell them, you know, if you can solve what you're about to see here, you can solve anything. Because after we do our battle, and then we show them how you can use our protocol, uh, we then replay it and show them how when one of us is using the skills we've just taught, the other one stays down and dirty, you can still turn it around. And, and I have, I do want to address another question you asked about how hybrid learning can be even higher impact um, than face-to-face. -face. First, I want to answer your recent question of what is the third course? Yes, exactly. Persuasion and influence. Persuasion and influence, which we um, subtitle presenting with impact. And that is um, the course that probably builds on the deepest history of 
our field, um, which is rhetoric and communication. It's sort of interesting because our field has people who are rhetorical scientists, people who are rhetorical theorists, and people who are really communication scientists. And we bring together what both of those groups have learned about persuasion and influence. And, and that's the course that really helps people to think about what are the issues you care more deeply about? What are the programs you value? What is it you would like to influence this organization, your team to do next? And how do you do that? How do you do that by becoming a great storyteller? How do you do that by converting your nerves into dynamic energy? How do you do that by really making use of all the key modes of persuasion in any presentation you give? And so that, that really is the three-course sequence, breakthrough conflict, hardwiring teamwork, and persuasion and influence. When, when you look at it with a kind of microscope is one-to-one -one interaction, small group interaction, and then presentational communication. So you mentioned something right there about how people can, how do you persuade and influence? And one you said is storytelling. Is that something you find isn't used very frequently? Not nearly enough. It's just so interesting. Um, even when we're teaching our course and everybody has an, uh, an opportunity to build a presentation that they would be giving at some point, and we talk about the power of the example, and we talk about the example as a story, and no one, no one can leave our class and not know examples, stories are important. And yet, Many people, it takes a while to really get that it's not an example simply to say, for example, in other organizations that have tried this diversity program, they had great results. That's not an example. And as we say it, an example is a story with a plot and characters that your audience cares about hearing how it evolves. And you can do it in less than a minute. Right. Mm -hmm blooded example what what happens is uh, audiences get confused and when they get confused they don't even know why they're getting confused but the number one point of confusion laying one idea complex idea right up against another one without an example to show us how that idea lives and breathes i really like that that's so important i think that really makes it so clear issues that i think often we face is that we hear all these ideas and ideas and complex, as you said, you layer one complex idea on top of another, but you never actually are given an example to see what that actually looks like, what that really means. And so it doesn't even really stick. And as an educator or as a trainer, again, it doesn't really stick in your imagination and in your consciousness of what exactly is being taught because you haven't had a, an example to really anchor it on. You know, we, exactly we've right. spent um, almost 40 years in academia and we've been asked on multiple occasions to do this particular course for professors, for mm -hmm. faculty. And that's a challenge because many of the faculty that we've worked with over time just aren't used to thinking in that way. And yet, once you do figure that out, it's a life skill that people carry with them in every context they're part of. as you were alluding to, Kinga, we may forget the concept, but we remember the example. Yes. And then the example triggers the concept. That's right. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's great. And, and you do this brilliantly in your, in your in-person, but also online, your course is, uh, is really, really beautifully done with, uh, you know, videos of you demonstrating and, and different ways of interacting with the online version. And also in your book, Be Quiet, Be Heard. I love that title. <laughs> so it's a great book. In all different aspects, you create online training you and working in a hybrid world. So let's really kind of focus in on teaching in a hybrid world and the lessons that you have implemented and also taken away from your experience. Can you tell me a little bit about what do you think is the most important aspect of training in an online environment? So let me start by telling you how this evolved for us. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a communication um, consultancy in New Zealand. And we have, I mean, one of the, my favorite parts of our life is that we've been there. It will be 20 times. It should have been 20 times and then COVID hit. And um, we had returned from New Zealand on March 4th, 2020 to the biggest calendar of presentations and learning events that we had ever had. And then we realized life was about to change. And we said to each other, we're at a crossroads here. Do we completely reboot or do we just kind of slow down? And fortunately for us, every client said to us, if you can do an online version of this, we'll do it. And we said, we definitely can. And then we looked at each other and said, what does that even mean? (laughs) And how are we going to do that? Now, we did have self-paced videos at that time. We had created them earlier, but they were just a fragment of what they are now. And I I just have to give a shout out to the brilliant Kelly um, Tinsley, who said to us, you know, I love your work. We met her um, in our work with um, Pew, and I can make these better. I can turn these into something that are highly interactive and engaging. So the videos themselves, and I'm certain part of the reason we won um, the gold from International E-Learning Association for best hybrid blended learning is because of the videos. Someone else deserves a bunch of the credit for turning them into the interactive way that they are. Peter said on that day when we were kind of making this decision, wasn't a day, it was probably over a week. Our specialty, our expertise, not just has been communication, but it's always been pedagogy, the science of teaching. We have always done our research. We have always been intrigued about how to create engaged, interactive, experiential learning. We just need to figure out this next frontier. We just need to figure out how to do it virtually. So everything we'll share with you now was really based on that. And the truth is, the truth is that if it weren't for COVID, we would not be in this place. If it weren't for COVID, we would still be getting on an airplane every Monday and returning home on Friday or Saturday, doing laundry and heading out again. But we had two plus years to just focus on it. Fantastic. And and you really incorporate because your trainings are very much using experiential learning 
And so you've really incorporated that in the online world. So can you give a little bit of insight onto some of the key ways that, that you make that happen and that yeah. others could take away and, and yes. help their courses? Yes. I will focus on the breakout rooms and how we use them. And I'm not sure if that's where Peter would have jumped in first or not. One of the things that we have really made use of, and this is why I think if you measured how much do people learn in our online events versus our in-person events, I would probably put some weight down on learning is higher in online. And I'm going to tell you why now. Now, Peter says, if you do the metric, not of how much do they actually learn, but how much closer do they feel as a team, then you'd have to put your chips down on the in-person probably. Exactly. But let's, let's talk about the reason I think learning is accelerated online. So first of all, when we're in breakout rooms, usually it's one to eight. We have trained facilitators in each of our breakout rooms. Each now, one happens to be a PhD in communication. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's and fantastic. we are doing a practical application of whatever it was we had just introduced in our course. We use everything we shared with your listeners. We, first of all, give people two minutes to write down how they would apply each step. Then we create a queue of names and we ask each person in turn what they wrote to share with the group. So, so let me say, no more sitting there passively. Right. And we really, um, in, I would say insist, but you can't force people, but we highly encourage them to show their faces and not to just have a, a symbol Right. Because there's something about really being with a person and seeing them that makes a big difference. That's right. So and, so, and so because of that, and because and by the way, when we have our queue of names, just like like we said to your listeners earlier, that doesn't mean somebody can't say, you know, I'm still trying to figure this one out. I don't have an answer yet. And nobody's worried about that. No one is to pass it. And the other thing we say is it is not cheating in this breakout room. If you hear something somebody said and you think it's better than what you wrote to write it down, this is a learning community. We're learning from each other. The other thing we say is we're not coming out of here with a consensus conversation that everybody agrees on all four steps. We are coming out here with everyone having something written down, something scripted out that you could imagine yourself saying real life, real time. And because of that, the learning is so precise. So if somebody in a breakout room said, well, the, the way I pinpointed those details was to say, you were kind of abusive and rude in the meeting. We would say, does anybody have any red flags about that? Here's what my experience is. And suddenly everybody gets why rude and abusive are generic and not pinpointed details. That kind of direct instruction with one facilitator for every eight people just doesn't happen in an on-site presentation where people are all over the room. They still practice. I mean, again, our learning events have always been known for being engaged and interactive with real live practice around real issues. And yet we are not 
available to be that kind of coach in the moment. And there's not necessarily the room as well. So in an online space, you can easily have breakout rooms. In a physical space, you can't take 100 people and put them into uh, five or or 10 different rooms. It's it's just not possible. Um, And so what you do or what we do is have them all working in pods so that they are practicing. That's part of our learning flow. But Peter and Susan can only get to a handful of groups. So we can't be coaches mm-hmm. in an on-site. We can be deep coaches online. Right. So I really I like that. To me, that's one of the ways that online learning creates greater learning outcomes. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, uh, we've never said this before, but so many of our programs in our breakout rooms will have seven different countries in that breakout room. I mean, how in the world can you do that, you know, face to face? So, you know, we're constantly dealing with uh, a very um, heterogeneous uh, group of people who are all over the place. Another big advantage of online uh, that you can bring people together from so far away and have as close to an intimate conversation as you can get. And let me tell you one other thing that we've learned about virtual online learning. So for for decades, Peter and I, our modal program was six hours. And then we realized you do not need to get 50 people or 500 people or even 20 people together in the same room at the same time to learn core skills. That can happen asynchronously. That can happen with people doing their own self-paced learning in their own space, in their own time when it's convenient to them. That was a huge takeaway. And I think organizations are really coming out of the COVID experience, realizing that we don't have to rent huge hotel space with big training rooms in order for all of this to happen. Now, what you do need to bring people together for, and now I'm saying it needs to be live, though it can be live virtual or live on site. You do still need to be bringing people together for practice, for peer feedback, for um, face-to-face interaction where people learn better together. And so that was another big learning for us that there's certain core content that people can learn on their own in a self-paced way and then come together where everybody has to schedule it out at the same time for the application, for the practice that is important. Absolutely. So there's the aspect, again, it's really thinking about what is the purpose of what we're trying to teach? And Mm -hmm. is it something that someone can do on their own? Is it enhanced by coming together and working together in the same physical space or breaking out into virtual breakout rooms. It's always bringing it back to what is the purpose that we are trying to get across. And as you were discussing, there's just so many different options if you think about critically about what exactly do you want to achieve. Um, But I really liked what you said because you touched a few times on the point that you're bringing traditional what we've always known as very good teaching methods. We've always known that you have to be clear and to, as you said, you 
have to give some pause for people to think and to put them into cues so that everybody has a chance to, to, to make a comment and to give their, but then bringing that into the online space makes it mm. even more important. It, they're, they're almost enhancing the learning even more because it really creates that sense of community and engagement in the online world, which can easily disappear without good structure and good uh, strategies around it. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah, exactly. Nice, nice Great listening summary. and summarizing. Great yes. summary. You know, at the very beginning of our journey, um, so now we're probably almost three years ago, it'll be three years in March, we went to an online program. It's the very first breakout room session that we were participants in. And when we went to our breakout room, first of all, we were like 15 minutes late getting put in there. But even worse than that, when we got there, people were still talking 15 minutes later about. So does anybody know what the assignment is? Did anybody bring it in? Do you know what we're supposed to be doing? And we vowed to each other on that day that we will never put people in a breakout room without the clearest Guidelines. Guidelines. What, what they're there for, what they're doing, a step-by-step -step approach. Right. A virtual so uh, worksheet so that they have some deliverable at the end of the time. Yeah. Very clear guidelines, very clear instructions. I love that. And also not to pass over the what you've mentioned before, that you have very skilled facilitators. Exactly. Yeah. You don't just put people into breakout rooms and let them be, with, even with clear instructions. That's right. You also make sure that there's facilitators there who are well-trained and know the subject matter. Uh, and, and I think that that's a really, really important point for people to take yeah, away thank as well. You. Yes, yes. well said, yes. Good, well, very interesting. I mean, so many interesting points that uh, people can take away in how to communicate more clearly and create more cohesion in the workplace. And I love the fact of the, the addressing conflict and and that you come to it from so many different angles, which is so important. And also great tips on how to make online training and learning uh, much more engaging and effective. So there's so much, I mean, we could go on and on to talk a lot more about this, but I highly encourage people to take a look at your work and read your book, which I absolutely love, Be Quiet, Be Heard, Paradox of Persuasion, which is uh, always an important topic. Of course, people can go on your website. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I think the best way is the website, which is theglazers.com. And that's all one word, T-H-E-G-L-A-S-E-R-S.com. And everything is there. Great. And that's also in the show notes. So, well, thank you so much, Susan and Peter, for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you very much for your insights. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. What so fun. Much.